Hey, we're finishing up a series that we've been in here for the, this month called Divided. And I've really been focused in on how the world that we live in is divided. We are pushed apart seemingly in lots of ways. <clears throat> and yet God has a plan to bring us together. He wants us to come together as his people, as his creation, and love each other and work together. And so in this series, we've been focused on the one another passages in the Bible. <clears throat> There's many of them. And they're really a focus with, uh, or uh, passages with instructions about how this is supposed to work. How are we supposed to come together? How do we come together in a world that is divided? And so we've been studying this and learning about it. Um, the Greek word, which is translated into one another, is alalon. And we see a couple of different variations of it. Um, uh, it's not always one another. Sometimes there are other admonitions or instructions. But this is the theme and so we've been looking at different aspects of it, um, of the relationship we're supposed to have as God's people. When we trust in Christ, we put our faith in him, he places us into his church. And this church is made up of people that belong to him, first of all, have found salvation in and through Jesus. But then, because of the way he's designed it, we then belong to each other. <clears throat> and so... Uh, the first week we looked at that metaphor in the Bible that's used for the church. It's called a body. And so there's different parts to your body, right? You have different, you know, you got hands and feet and eyes and ears and, you know, most of us, most of the parts, right? You might be missing a few, some of us, but, but in general, our bodies are kind of made up the same. And, and so Paul says, listen, in the same way that your body is many different parts, but they all belong to each other, my right hand has a close relationship and connection to my left foot in that if my left foot is hurting, then my whole body knows something's wrong, right? And we all have to deal with it. So in the same way, the church is made up of many people, but we're connected to each other. We belong to each other. And then we looked at how we're called to love each other. And that love is really to define our relationship. It motivates us. Um, we have a God who we serve and worship who is the originator of love. He is love. The Bible says literally God is love. And so we are called to grow to love each other in spite of the fact that we're going to struggle with that. And so these different aspects that we've been looking at through these series are different focus on what these one another passages are teaching us. And so we're going to conclude this series this weekend with a focus on how we've come together for lots of reasons, right? We support each other, we, um, we love each other, we're, we help each other grow. This week we want to focus on how we're called to work together. It's one of the reasons that God's called us together. See, we are all, as followers of Jesus, when you put your trust in him, you become a part of the movement of God. This movement has been going on for 2,000 years. It's a movement of people. It's a movement to save and change the world. That's what you're a part of when you trust in Christ. Now, the early church, the early believers, they were certain that Jesus was going to return, which he told them he would return. They were certain he was going to return in their lifetime. 
they thought, we're not going to die before Jesus comes back. 2,000 years later, we know Jesus didn't come back in their lifetime, nor in the lifetimes of many generations since then. But we have this responsibility to stay focused on the primary reason that we're together. This movement has a mission, and that's what we want to talk about today, the mission that God has called us to. How do we accomplish the mission? How do we do it? It's not easy. It's a difficult mission. How are we to accomplish it together? Well, one of the ways we do that is by knowing and following these one another passages. As we're going to look at today, there's a lot of aspects to working together. It's not easy and it is difficult, and yet we need to do it. Desperately, the world needs us to work together. And so we've got to figure this out. We've got to learn from the scriptures how we're called to live in relationship with each other so that we can work together to accomplish the mission. What we have been entrusted with, listen, what we've been entrusted with is the most valuable thing the world has ever known. It's the greatest treasure. It's the greatest message. There isn't anything more valuable than what we have been entrusted with as followers of Jesus to carry on and to ensure that we disseminate it, we spread it to the world around us. Fritz Kreisler was a famous violinist back in, uh, born in 1875, died in 1962. One of the most famous violinists in the world. Very gifted, very powerful. And throughout his life and career, he made a lot of money. He made a lot of wealth. Now he gave most of it away as he earned it. And so when on one trip, he found an exquisite violin. He wasn't able to purchase it. He asked the owner, how much for the violin? I love this violin. I've just got to have it. And the owner said, "Um, here's the price. And he said, I can't afford that. And so he left disappointed, but he began right away to try to raise the money so that he could purchase it. And when he had raised the money, he went back to the owner of the violin. He said, hey, I've raised the money. Can I purchase this beautiful, amazing violin? And the owner said, sadly, I would, I would love to sell it to you, but I'm no longer the owner of it. A collector came and purchased it. And so he, disappointed, said, well, who's that collector? Maybe I can go talk to him. And so he got the name. He went to his residence and introduced himself and said, sir, you have a violin that you've recently come into possession of. It's an exquisite piece of art, a beautiful instrument. I've got to have it. And the man said, well, I hate to disappoint you. Life's full of disappointments, right? Um, This violin is the centerpiece of my collection. I'm not not gonna sell it. And uh, Fritz was disappointed. He went to leave and he had a thought. He said, sir, could I please, if it would be okay, could I just play the violin? And so the man said, well, sure, that would be fantastic. And so he went and got the violin and Fritz began to play it, producing absolutely beautiful, exquisite music, um, world-changing music. And uh, after he was done, he gave the violin back, said, thank you, sir, for at least letting me play the violin. It was everything I thought it would be. To which the owner, the collector said, you know, it would be wrong for me to keep this violin knowing what you can do with it. It'd be unfair of me to leave this violin in a box collecting dust so I can look at it when it could be played and literally change people's lives. 
You need to take the violin and produce beautiful music with it. We have been entrusted with a message of forgiveness, message of hope that the world needs. The most valuable message, the most valuable um, uh, thing that the world has ever known comes directly from God. And you and I have been entrusted with it. We're told to be ready to share it. I think sometimes we think we've got to convince others of the truth of the gospel, their need for forgiveness. But I really don't, you know, some of us who are gifted, and I don't, us, I don't mean me, but some of you who are gifted as evangelists, yes, you might be called to really um, do the work of an apologist and, and kind of debate with others and convince. But for most of us, it is simply being ready, being willing and not being intimidated away from sharing the message that we have. We rub shoulders with people every day who need to hear a message that there's a God who loves them and created them and wants a relationship with them. They walk in discouragement and darkness. You and I have the message of hope, but too often we allow ourselves to be perhaps intimidated by the messages in the world. Keep that to yourself. Nobody wants to hear it. Maybe we allow... Um, our own fears and insecurities. Maybe we just get focused in on our lives, the responsibilities that we have. And yet that's why we need one another because I need you and you need me so that we all stay focused on why it is we're here and what it is that we're supposed to be accomplishing. The church is a powerful movement. It's still the vehicle to advance the work of God. In order to stay on mission, we need help and we need to help one another. It's too easy to get off course. It's too easy to get distracted with the need to provide, to build our lives, to raise our families, to take care of and put out the fires around us, to deal with the issues in life. Sometimes we get off focus. We neglect the real reason that we're here, the purpose for our existence. And so we got to work together to continue to maintain that urgency that the early church had. They believed Jesus would come back at any moment. And so they were prepared. They lived their lives that way or, or encouraged each other to live their lives that way. And so we must do the same thing. We've got to help each other stay focused. And so in this message, this last week of one another passages, I want to look at the ones that orient around the mission that we're called to. This mission, which is the most important mission, needs some key factors and characteristics in order for us to accomplish it. And one of the things this mission needs, the first one we're going to look at, is it needs motivation. Hebrews chapter 10, starting verse 23, says this, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promises, or to keep his promise, excuse me. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Once again, there's that message. We're going to see it in a number of places today. The message that Jesus' return is coming soon. Um, we must live with that same uh, realization and awareness. Call it the imminent return of Christ, that he could return at any moment. It's how the early church lives. It's how we need to live. 
Sometimes things happen in our world that make us more aware of the possibility of his return. But can I assure you that nothing needs to take place in this world for us to uh, see Jesus and to be called to meet him in the air. And so any moment this could happen. And so we got to stay motivated in the right direction. How do you stay motivated in life? What motivates you? How do you get up every morning and go after the things that have to be done? A lot of times motivation depends on our perspective. Like the teenage boy who was out playing basketball um, in the driveway, shooting hoops with his buddies. He came in after a while, said, Mom, I got knocked and jostled and one of my contacts came out and I looked real hard and I couldn't find it. And she said, okay. So Mom went out and began to look for the contact in the driveway. Came in sometime later with the contact. To which her son said, Mom, how in the world did you come up with that contact? I looked really hard. She said, well, we were looking for two different things. You were looking for a contact. I was looking for 250 bucks. (laughs) Listen, your perspective can change your motivation. Do you need to go after the mission of God? Do you know the urgency with which you're called to live? that you've been entrusted with a valuable message, that it is dependent on you. God is really relying on you to be willing to interact with those around you in moments of need, to press in with a message of hope, not to be scared or intimidated or made to think nobody wants to hear this. The truth is that people are desperately needing to hear the message of God's grace, perhaps now more than ever. This passage tells us we are to stir up one another to do good. Another word that its translation is spur one another on to love and good deeds. Kind of like you spur a horse. Horses don't always want to move, right? Just saying, hey, go, doesn't always work. That's why cowboys and cowgirls have spurs. Some horses need a little motivation, right? That's kind of the emphasis or the tone of this passage, You and I on our own may not always want to get up every day and stay motivated to do love and good deeds toward others, to stay motivated towards this mission. We might need some stirring up. (laughs) I might need some from you, and you might need some from me. We're supposed to be providing that for each other. We're supposed to create an environment in our church where we're helping each other stay motivated on this mission. I think of the people who, uh, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, I know I have. I don't go through the coffee line very often in the morning. I make my own at home. Um, and so uh, I couldn't afford to get coffee at those places as much. But anyway, um, uh, too much about me. But here's the thing, you get in the coffee line every once in a while. Uh, you get up to the window and, and the, the lady says, well, hey, the person in front of you paid for your coffee. And then you are supposed to do what? You know the rules, right? You're supposed to pay for the person. you're like, well, wait a minute. Their order is twice as big as mine was. You know? Yeah, right? That's what some of you think. No, listen. It's not about the money there. It's about the being stirred up to do something good. To start your Monday morning thinking about somebody else and doing something good for somebody else. You know, that's really a good thing. It's a good thing. We need those kind of things in our lives. I need them. I'm sure you do too. So when we think about how do we stir one another towards love. I think of uh, the love languages. You know, it's a book that we give to um, 
couples that are preparing for marriage and we say, read this book, it's gonna help you do a better job being married. You're gonna be thinking about your spouse and how to communicate love to them. We tendency, our tendency is to do for other people what we would want done, right? And so buying my wife, brand new Harley, you know, motorcycle for her birthday, it seems like a natural uh, gift that she would love. But if I don't know her very well, I might make a mistake. So we got to know what other people are interested in and what makes them feel loved. And the five love languages help us with that. There's five different distinct areas that people, when these things are done for them, it encourages them. It makes them feel loved. Their love tank gets filled up. First one is words of encouragement. Words of encouragement. Do you have in your mind, right, as you go throughout your day, do you have some encouraging words just ready to share with somebody else? Do you have something to say that's an encouragement to them? It's a great way to go out throughout your day. Now, some people will say, it won't mean that much to them. Oh, thanks, you know. I mean, encouragement's good for everybody. But for some people, you can change the course of their day. Acts of service is another one. Doing for someone else, serving them, right? Doing something that they would normally have to do or just showing that you cared for them. Um, an act of service is one way to communicate love to some people that will just fill their love tank. For others, it's quality time. Quality time. Spending time with someone focused on them. For some people, that's just going to fill their love tank. For others, it's physical touch. And for others, giving gifts. Five ways that you can show love to others. We're supposed to stir each other up, motivate each other in this direction. Love and good deeds. It's interesting in the Bible most of the time that good works are talked about. It's in relation to other people. It's in relation to how we interact with the people around us. Good works are something that we need to learn to do. We need training in. One of the most exceptional difficult situations is when, perhaps you've experienced this, but we're called to love, do love and good deeds right towards everyone, regardless of who they are and regardless of how they treat us. So one of the greatest challenges is to react lovingly, meaning correctly, right? With kindness, with consideration to the person that you interact throughout the day that doesn't treat you the same way. You probably never had anybody kind of be rude or short with you, but it happens. Let me assure you out there in the world. And, uh, and so sometimes we have someone direct at us some negativity. How do we respond in those moments? Do we respond with the same energy, the same response? Do we push back, right, with the same kind of behavior? Well, this would go against what the scriptures are teaching us. We're actually called to act differently. We represent God in the world. So it becomes very important that we do not respond with what we, our instinct is, but that we respond the way God has told us to. So how do we do that? Seems impossible. Seems impossible, man. When there's just certain things that set me off, you know. Somebody does it, just it's kind of like a trigger, man. It's, just, it's wrong, it isn't right. I just want to sit them down. And teach them how to live life. You know, maybe a little spanking is required. You know, I don't know. Like we get these, right, these feelings. You probably don't. But maybe the person next to you, like I always say, I know I do at times. So how do we do this? 
I read a book once called Servant Leadership, and it was all about how we can train ourselves to respond against our natural tendency. And the illustration used is the way in which we require young children to learn not to react to their natural urges when they need to go to the bathroom. We ask them to control that, not respond to it, right? And yet learn how to, in the appropriate place at the appropriate time. My oldest granddaughter is right now learning this. It's really fun to watch, right? It's excited when it works. Here's the thing. We expect children to learn this. It's training. It's training not to respond to my natural reaction to something. Well, God says, you can learn the same thing as you interact with others. So let me spur you on to love and good deeds in the world we live in. You should not be responding to people's negativity towards you in like manner to them. You should be responding in love, even to people that have your worst at heart, even people that might want to do you harm. You and I are still called by God to respond the way he wants us to. Fortunately, he doesn't say that we need to have great feelings towards everyone as we do it. I'm thankful for that. (laughs) I think it is something that we can learn to do. We can also train our hearts to care about people, even those that are enemies. However, at first he says, just behave the right way. Treat them with the right actions, the right words, the right response. So good news, you don't have to feel warm, fuzzy feelings to people that are negative to you. But you are called to respond correctly with your words and with your actions. God requires us to stay motivated in these areas. The mission he's called us to, it's absolutely vital that we train ourselves, that we continue to motivate each other toward love and good deeds. The next principle that keeps the mission moving forward is the principle of sharing with others. Um, Having a giving attitude. This movement that you're a part of, this mission that we're on, requires a generous people with generous hearts. See, this movement needs generosity. 1 Peter 4, starting verse 7, goes this way. The end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Most important of all, Continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. And here's the key uh, verse. Cheerfully share your home with those who who need a meal or a place to stay. Cheerfully be generous. Be willing to give. Um, It's interesting because God commands us to do things, and oftentimes we think, that God's commanding us to do something because he needs us to do it. And, uh, and, you know, again, with my oldest granddaughter, if I encourage her, maybe even if I command her not to mess around with the electrical socket, I'm not doing that primarily for myself. <laughs> I mean, if she gets hurt and we got to go to the emergency room, it would be bad. It would affect me. However, my primary motivation is not myself, it's her. So when God commands us to do things, he's commanding us to do them because we need them. Carl Menninger of the Menninger Institute published a report years ago stating that generous people are happy people. He also said that giving 
is a criteria for mental health. See, being generous is who God calls us to be. He calls us to be generous because it's not only good for the world around us, but it's good for us. He also says, show deep love for each other. Care about each other. Give generously of your heart to others. I discover as I get older that when I was younger, I used to think of generosity as helping somebody monetarily, giving some money, giving something. That's how I kind of thought of generosity. And to be honest, you know, it was a little bit of a challenge, but I kind of enjoyed it usually, and, and I was pretty willing to do it. As I get older, I realize that that form of generosity is probably the easiest. Writing a check is pretty easy, okay? Giving somebody some money to help them out in a situation is pretty easy. What I find very difficult is being generous with my heart, being generous to love others, to give them a second chance, to overlook an offense, to forgive them. Now there's the challenge of generosity for me. Being generous is something we must grow in. This movement requires it. The movement of Jesus is a generous movement. Again, the God that we serve and worship, it's because of his generosity that we're here. We've experienced his love and forgiveness because he chose not to consider himself, but to consider you and me and to give and to serve and to sacrifice. So we're part of a generous movement. And again, it requires that we learn that same generosity. But in order to be generous, we also need participation. This movement needs everyone to contribute in order to be successful. First Peter chapter four says it this way. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the energy or with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ, all glory and power to him forever and ever. Simply put, we cannot accomplish this mission that God has called us to without an all-in, all-hands-on-deck uh, attitude. We've got to participate. We need every person to be involved in order to accomplish it. If we don't have involvement at that level, we simply will fall short, in my opinion, of accomplishing the mission in our time. We simply will not get the message of the gospel to each person that needs it. That's how urgent it is that you and I are all involved. We talk about in our church participation and the importance of it and that we're a place of involvement. We want everyone to find their place. Just finished a shape class with another group of people uh, this morning and it's like, hey, this is so important. Don't let this slip. You need this, right? Because it's gonna shape who you are. It helps you grow spiritually. But also the movement of God, the, the church needs you. And that's what the scriptures clearly teach us. You are needed in order for us to accomplish our mission. And so participation contribution is absolutely essential. When we think about it, when we think about the nature of life, finding why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing is really important. We had our, all of our children home this week. We've got three kids. Two of them are married and now have children. Our oldest daughter and son-in-law and grandson live in North Carolina. And they were actually able to come and visit. And so it was fun to have everybody at home and we're um, 
interacting, changing a lot of diapers, you know, it was fun. And uh, one of the things that happens when you have adult children in their 20s is you get these deep conversations about life. You know, what are we supposed to be doing? How do we know God's will? How do we determine what God wants us to do? So important. And so it was fun to kind of listen to uh, our kids talk about this and weigh it out. And they said, you know, actually one of them brought up the point that purpose is one of the key factors in living life well. Knowing what your purpose is. And I said, yeah, we have this statement in our country, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right? I said, I think that should be changed to life, liberty, and the pursuit of purpose. Because if you find purpose, then you'll find happiness. <laughs> you'll experience it. But if you're looking for happiness, you may miss purpose altogether. In fact, you can miss much of life trying to just pursue happiness. It's kind of a shallow goal. And so it's like there's something deeper and meatier there in life. And I can't think of a better way for you to discover purpose in life than to be a part of the work of God. God, knowing our need for purpose, built it into his church. Each person given gifts and abilities and can contribute and are called to participate in the work of God. This is at the core of purpose. We need to discover purpose. We need to walk in it. Figuring out why you're here is one of the keys to living life well. And there are ancillary purposes. There's a lot of them. But the core reason that you're here, you've been called by God to be a part of his work, his church, his mission, is to set out to accomplish it and to participate in it. And I hope that we'll continue to grow and create an environment of participation. So important that every person is involved. The Bible really talks about it in the sense of duty. You have a duty to use your gifts and abilities to be involved in the church of Jesus Christ, to be involved in the mission of God. When we celebrate, as we celebrate this weekend, Memorial Day, thinking of duty, duty to country, it's a good illustration and a good reminder of what duty is and the importance that we understand it. Edward, Edward Everett Hale was a distinguished poet, former chaplain of the U.S. Senate. He eloquently put it this way in terms of duty, of course, to country, but we also can relate it to our call to follow Jesus. He said, I am only one, but I am one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, that I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I shall do. We need a church that's functioning. Remember our fall campaign, Be the Church. We want to be healthy and unified and firing on all cylinders. And we looked at the six cylinders that power the church. And in order to accomplish those and see those happening in our church and in our, in our own lives, we need to be involved. The communal contribution is important to the church's success at fulfilling the mission that God's called us to in our time. It's a key component. In order for us to have participation, we talked about this last week, but it fits this week as well, is this movement needs encouragement. First Thessalonians, one of the books that really speaks to the end times, um, 
Glenn Marker has been teaching our uh, adult class from the 9.30 to 10.30 hour. Been teaching on end times, right? And so he's done uh, Revelation and then Daniel and now First and Second Thessalonians, right? And, and there, that's been a theme that's been going on. And so First um, Thessalonians uh, is written to a church that thought Jesus had come back and they missed him and they got left behind. Maybe you remember the left behind movies. If you're old enough, you remember the ones that were made in the 70s and they were terrifying about uh, the great tribulation and what happens if you didn't get taken in the rapture when Jesus returned. And so, but I digress. All that has nothing to do with today. I'm just giving you a little extra. But 1 Thessalonians 5 speaks to this importance of encouragement within the movement of God. This is what it says, starting in verse 9. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us, Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other. There it is. Encourage each other, one another, and build each other up just as you are already doing. He says, remember your position. God chose to save you. Pour out his grace and mercy on you. So don't Let it go to your head. Don't start getting self-righteous, thinking you're better than others. But remember humbly that God has saved you. And when you walk in that humility and the realization that rather than God's wrath, you've experienced his forgiveness, you can more easily encourage others. I find that it's easier to have a heart of encouragement when I'm walking, right, in humility and my need for God. And so this passage speaks to it. Encourage each other, build each other up. I think we could not overstate the importance of encouragement within the church. A lot of times people think, if I encourage somebody too much, I'm going to spoil them. Can I just encourage you? (laughs) If that becomes a problem here in our church, if we have a bunch of spoiled people running around because they've been encouraged too much, boy, I promise you I will address it. Okay, I will address it from up here very directly. Okay, but I think we have a long ways to go, right? Before we would ever even get close to spoiling people through encouragement. So can I just say to you, you're probably underdoing it, okay? Um, Just recently heard a pastor say, encourage your team. And when you think you've done it too much, double it, right? Because we live, I don't know if you noticed, but we live in somewhat discouraging times. And can we acknowledge that trying to follow Jesus and walking this path is not easy and we'll get discouraged in the accomplishment of the mission all the time. And I need you and you might need me to provide a little encouragement, maybe a lot of encouragement along the way. This movement needs encouragement. If we're going to accomplish the mission, man, we've got to lift each other up, build each other up. And, uh, and it's, it's funny because encouragement does act kind of as a glue. Someone said that encouragement is like peanut butter. The more you spread it around, the better things stick together. <laughs> encouragement will help us stay in this race, stay after this mission. We can't overdo it. We need more and more of it. Let's encourage each other. Let's build each other up with the reality of the mission that we're after. 
the importance of it. And then as others discourage us along the way, we will find the strength to continue. I think we do need to overdo encouragement, go too far, um, make it a real problem in our church that we're spoiling each other with encouragement. When we create an encouragement, encouraging environment, when we work at building each other up, there's an amazing thing that can happen. It's probably one of the most important, as just the end of this message, the most important one another concept and aspect to the church, to us accomplishing our mission. It's the most elusive, I think the most difficult by far. And yet, if we can realize it, if we can experience it and in a sense cause it to happen by our own obedience to God's word, the power is immeasurable. See, this movement needs this last aspect, this last key, and that is this movement needs unity. Romans 15 states it this way, may God who gives this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I like watching old westerns. I don't know if you guys do, but I kind of enjoy that. And the old westerns a lot of times would have the cattle drive in it, you know. They start off in Texas or somewhere, Montana, and they go all the way across the country, get the cattle to market kind of fun. They're herding these cattle along, you know, all these cowboys on their horses and they're living old school, man. They got their bedroll behind them and they're eating tack, you know, like dried bread. That's like a rock, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Am I getting you in the, in the mood? Listen, those old Westerns, I, I just kind of like that. There's something about them that I kind of enjoy. And so here's the deal. One of the things that when they're herding these cattle and they stop at night, they got to um, you know, herd them up, right? And try to get them to bed down so they don't take off and aren't hurt by anything. None of them get killed. So they have to have night shifts to go out and check them. But when the cowboys get off their horse and bed down for the night, they don't have a corral to put their horses in. So one of the things they would do is when they got off their horse for the night, the horses need to be able to get around and find some food, eat a little bit. So they would use something called a hobble, Right? And they would tie the front two feet together, I think, typically. And so the horse could kind of hop on those front legs, but he couldn't run. And when I think of the church, I think of a church that isn't unified is like a hobbled horse. I think that we can still do some things. We can accomplish some stuff. But it's nothing like we could do if we were unified. Patience and encouragement Paul says here in the book of Romans are kind of key components. And God gives you those so that you can achieve, we can achieve and maintain harmony and unity. This such elusive yet key component to accomplishing the mission of God, so valuable. The Bible talks about it. Jesus prayed for it. We must discover it. It will unlock such potency in the church to accomplish the mission. I think we struggle with it. We struggle to understand it. Typically, we don't have time and patience for it. But I think it's one of those things that I think a lot about. 
especially as I, um, the era of life that I'm in, how valuable unity is, how important it is, how it needs to be fought for, protected. It's such a key component to accomplishing the mission God's given us. Our effectiveness as the church is desperately needed. Do you know that the, the world around us needs to see a church that's living out the gospel, that is looking to meet the needs of others and to care for them? Our world just doesn't have enough of that. And it's difficult times we live in. More pressure all the time, it seems. And yet we have not just a answer, we have the answer to what the world needs. Now, I know they don't always recognize it. I know at times you'll get discouraged, you'll get demotivated, but don't give up. We must keep spurring one another on to love and good deeds. I've got an idea, just a simple little thing, maybe could wrap this series up and give a little application to it. Do you know that hearing things and not doing them isn't really very useful, right? We gotta do something with what we learn. And so I'm big on that. I try to do it in my own life. I try to provide that application piece. And so I've got an idea for you. I know the news this past week um, is both disheartening, discouraging, and infuriating that we continue to have individuals able to prey upon uh, our most vulnerable, right? Our children as they're learning um, is is discouraging, disheartening, saddening. It's also angering. A lot of emotions that we deal with. And we know now when these things happen in our country, we become very personally connected to them. And of course, we worry and are concerned for our, our own community, our own kids. And so I've got an idea that um, in and through this, what typically we do, uh, I think some of us anyway, is uh, we think of the big picture. Something needs to change in our world. This needs to stop. And then we come up with ideas. We have our positions. We tend to polarize, right? And we are fighting each other about what the answer is, which typically doesn't provide a solution. And so um, nothing gets done. And so what I learned and am trying to learn and remind myself is that changing the macro issues in the world is not something that I'm going to be able to do much about. I have a little bit of a say in it, but what happens in our country with the big issues I don't know. I can type out something on Facebook, you know, but is that really going to change anything? Probably not. And nobody's going to listen to me. You know what I mean? So what can I do with that energy? Well, I learned through COVID. One of the things I really felt God kind of impressed upon me was I may not be able to do a lot about the big picture, but I can do something about my little world that he's put me in. He's given me the opportunity to do something, right? And so like we just read, I can't do everything, but I can do something. And so I thought of this this week as a way to try to affect change in our community amongst a generation that desperately needs to know that they're loved, to feel accepted, to know that there's something good in the world for them. And so what can I do? Well, instead of creating something new, I try to think about the things that are already happening. As a church, we pull together in the summer, and we do something called VBS, Vacation Bible School. And I just wondered, what if you were to look around your world, the people you rub shoulders with? What if you were to identify a couple of young people who you could invite? Just let them know VBS is happening. Hey, I'll even pick you up and bring you. Hey, maybe I'll even stay and help out, right? But 
But what if we were to utilize a little thing like VBS to do something to try to affect change in the heart of someone? I know that we can't fix all the problems in the world. We can't. We can't solve every situation. We can't change the heart of every young person. But we can change some. We can affect some. We can do something about the ones that are around us. I just want to encourage you, maybe think about that, pray about it. What if you were to just help somebody get to, listen, the gospel message changes people's lives. I've met so many whose lives were changed. The trajectory of their life was changed because somebody got them to a VBS, to a Sunday school where they heard the gospel. Can I just urge you to consider doing something like that, taking some action to do something to change things in the world we live in. By the way, the sound of babies crying, that's just music to my ears. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness to us. You call us not just to feel things, but to do something. You've given us a purpose. Be a part of your church. Be a part of doing good in the world, combating evil, standing against the forces that seek to destroy. We don't have to just sit by and be frustrated. We can do something. I pray that you'd help us as your people, salt and light, representatives of you in this world. Help us to take action, to do something, to be ready to share the message of hope, to encourage somebody to express love to somebody who needs to hear that, who needs to know. God, I pray you'd help us to love on the young people in our community. Encourage them that there is a God who loves them and cares about them. There's a church full of people who love them and care about them. God, would you help us as we seek to stay motivated, to stay focused on the mission that you've called us to. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.